This is 1 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read the entire chapter here now. God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh, Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000, and they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And so ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, this is indeed your word. We pray that you would transform us through the renewing of our minds that we might be able to discern what is good and right and acceptable in your eyes. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who came to save us for yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How can this man save us? Those were the words of the so-called worthless fellows at the end of chapter 10. The ones who despised Saul, the newly appointed king, and it wasn't without warrant. Saul hadn't especially given much confidence to the people in his leadership. In fact, it was only those who our text from last week says that the Lord touched their hearts, these men of valor. Those were the only men that seemed to surround themselves around this newly appointed king. Well, that same question, how can this man save us? It's, uh, it's the question that the world asks of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Uh, for very different reasons. It's not that Jesus hasn't instilled uh, a sense of confidence in his kingship and his authority, and yet it is uh, our natural inclination to be skeptical that some Jewish man who dwelled on the earth 22,000 years ago uh, has any relevance 
to our life today. In fact, God must touch our hearts if we are to see the, the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. But it's also not just Jesus. I think the, that same question gets asked of the church of our Lord, even you and me. The church is obviously not any king. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet we are told we are his body. We are set apart for his kingdom. We are mobilized into his kingdom. And so we are called to serve with all of our might. And there is an element that salvation does come through the church. The Apostle Paul said, I become all things to all people that by any means necessary, I might save some. And I think uh, a question that you and I tend to ask in the church, rightfully so, is how can we save anybody? Where is their true power within the church? Beloved, as we look at our text today from 1 Samuel chapter 11, the, the answer is one in, a, in the same for all three instances. Salvation is of the Lord. And yet God works salvation through his appointed people by the power of his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. It was by the Spirit of God that God worked salvation for the people of Jabesh through Saul. It was by the Spirit of God that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for all of his people. And it is by the Spirit of God that God applies salvation through the work of the church. Uh, so we don't know how much time elapsed between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, but this skepticism in the, the authority of Saul, the benefit of Saul as king, seems to become pervasive. And the circumstance that we're immediately presented with is Nahash brings the army of the Ammonites to the town of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, Jabesh-Gilead was an a Israelite town that was on the east side of the Jordan, and the Ammonites were the closest neighboring enemy country. And there's a reason to believe that Nahash was harassing many of the cities on, and towns on the east side of the Jordan, but this is the first one that is recorded for us in God's word, and it says that it came, they came up and they besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And it's important for us to see how those men of Jabesh responded. Did they cry out to the Lord? Lord, you, the Lord who delivered us from the hands of the Egyptians, please come save us. You promised to deliver us from the hand of all of our enemies. Come save us. No, they did not. Did they call to their newly appointed king, Saul, please come and, and, and save us? No, they did not. They did the very Thing, precisely what the Lord had commanded his people not to do. They asked to make a treaty or a covenant with this enemy nation and to submit themselves to them. They said to Nahash, make a treaty with us, or the, the word is actually make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Brothers and sisters, we have to see that this is nothing less than an extreme act of faithlessness. God has been ever faithful to deliver his people and God had said, I will deliver you out of Egypt so that you will be my people. I will enter into covenant with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will save you from all your enemies. You will serve me. And here they are 
at the first chance of uh, being affected or afflicted by these enemies, what do they do? They make a treaty, a covenant with, or they seek to, with the Ammonites. We will serve you, Nahash. Well, there's a proverb in God's word that says that the mercy of the wicked is cruel. We see that here in verse 2 of the passage. Nahash says, yeah, I'll make a covenant with you if I first gouge out all your right eyes. Now, there's probably a couple things that were at play here. First and foremost, he was making them unfit for battle. They, they were not going to be fit for battle with one eye uh, gouged out. But the other was probably more what he says here, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The Jabesh Gilead being on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, um, here in the United States, uh, St. Louis is considered uh, a gateway to the west, uh, that's one of its nicknames as a city. And the, the arch that you see in, in St. Louis is to be representative of this gateway from the east to the west. And in many ways, Jabesh Gilead was like a gateway into the land of Israel there on the east side. And what Nahash seems to be saying is, I want to establish a monument at Jabesh that demonstrates my power, my victory, and bring disgrace on all Israel envisioned an entire city of one-eyed people that pointed to the brutality of Nahash and the Ammonites and their victory over God's people. And the men of the elders of Jabesh said, well, give us, can you give us seven days and uh, see if anybody will come and help us? And it, it seems, may seem a bit odd that the Ammonites would agree to such a delay until we realized that Jabesh was a fortified city and they were erecting siege works against them. It would take a considerable amount of time to defeat this city. And so seven days may have actually sped up the process to victory. And so they agreed to such a delay. Um, but again, see the lack of faith that these people had in their new king. The men of Jabesh didn't send a, a, a note straight to Gibeah where Saul was. It was, uh, let's send it throughout all the territory of Israel, to somewhere, someone out there might save us. And when the message comes to Gibeah, where Saul lives, notice that the people of Gibeah, even they, don't seem to have a whole lot of faith in their new king. Because when they receive the message, what do they do? Do they go find Saul? No, they simply weep. Where are the men of valor? that had surrounded themselves around Saul. They don't seem to be anywhere to be seen. And not only that, what, what about Saul? When we first met Saul in chapter 9, he was uh, being sent to go find some donkeys throughout the land, and here he seems to be back to same old, same old Saul. He's just out in the field, working behind the oxen. And yet despite all this lack of faith in Saul, God was active. God was eager to bring deliverance to his people because it just so happened that Saul was coming in as the messengers were there and the people were weeping and Saul said, what are people crying about? And they explained the message and it says, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. God took action through his appointed king. And there's three very important actions that we see the Spirit of God do when he comes upon Saul. So we need to look at those one by one. The first is he brought anger 
There was a holy anger that brought upon Saul. It says, when he heard these words, his anger was greatly kindled. Beloved, do you know that God is angry against sin and wickedness and oppression of his people? It was aroused in Saul by the Spirit of God. One commentator said that he was filled with a God-induced rage. God loves his people. He has promised to protect his people. His heritage at Jabesh Gilead was under attack. Not only that, he has placed his name upon his people. When Nahash said, I want to bring disgrace upon Israel, he was saying, I want to bring disgrace on the name of the power of our God. And God was greatly angered. And that anger was not just an emotion, but it brought about action as the Spirit then assembled God's people. In a graphic display of this rage, Saul took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and then sent care packages throughout the entire nation of Israel. And he said this, Anyone who doesn't come behind Saul and Samuel Let us assemble together. Anyone who does not do that, it will be done to your oxen as it was done to this. You see what it says? How the effect of this visual was for the people? It says, Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. A dread by the Spirit of God, working through this action of Saul. And then third... They attacked. They were assembled together for battle. They attacked and they defeated the Ammonites. They went to attack the Ammonites, delivered the people of Jabesh Gilead, and they were victorious. The king was victorious as he saved his people. And then finally, the spirit through this victory vindicated his king. Verse 12, after the victory was all accomplished, the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Saul, in a moment of clarity, recognized that this victory was not of himself, recognized that he was the mere vessel, and he exercised mercy. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Far be it from me to put anyone to death. This was God's work. And Samuel, uh, taking advantage of this moment of clarity and this right thinking about the Lord, said, let's go to Gilgal and renew renew the kingdom. Now it's important for us to understand what kingdom he had in mind. Gilgal was a town on... Uh, that was the first town that the people of Israel came to after they crossed the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua. They'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses died. Joshua took over. He led them over the, the Jordan River, and they came to Gilgal. And at Gilgal, there was a great acknowledgment of God's provision and and. Uh, protection as their king. They had taken 12 boulders, one for each tribe, and they had made up a monument there to be reminded of God's provision and bringing them into the land of promise. And so this was a fitting place for Samuel to take the people and say, let's remember who the real king is. 
let's remember that it is God who, who fights for you, you. It is God's power that delivers you. You rejected the Lord and you asked for this king. Well, your king is saying that it is the Lord God who is the true king. Let's go renew that covenant. And so they did, and they acknowledged the kingship of the Almighty God, and there they made Saul king before the Lord at Gilgal. And so the answer to that question, well, how, how can this man save us? Well, it's right there. It's, he could only save them by the power of the Spirit of God working in him as he lived before the face of God doing the work of God. And in, re- in response to this uh, right relationship, this deliverance, they were full of joy and worship of the Almighty God. They sacrificed peace offerings, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. There is great joy, brothers and sisters, in being, receiving the favor of our God and receiving the deliverance of God and, and being a, in a right relationship with our God. And beloved, um, this, this question of how can this man save us is a question that is a very important question for us to ask, particularly when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a question that this watching world in which we live asks, how can this man save us? This is a man who lived 2,000 years ago and who is no longer here on earth. What relevance could he possibly have to our lives today. And if we look at the story of redemption from cover to cover, we see that that answer is exactly the same as what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 11 with respect to Saul. It is not by the might, a human might, and it's not by human power, but it is by the power and might of the Spirit of God by which that man, Jesus Christ, saved us. Because Jesus came to save us from the ultimate enemy, from sin and from death and from separation, the the very wrath of God due to us for sin. And he came and he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit beyond measure. In fact, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. His spirit was and is the Holy Spirit. His body, the very temple of the Holy Spirit. And and what's more, he was anointed by the Spirit and set apart, and he received that Spirit with beyond measure. And that Spirit worked those same three things that we just saw that the Spirit did here in this passage through the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with a holy anger. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that we who are in the church are very much like the people of Jabesh-Gilead? We are under attack. We are besieged by the forces of evil and wickedness in this world, and our God's holy anger is aroused. Do not think that your God has a blind eye to your suffering, to the affliction, to the frustration, or even your indifference. We're too, too, too much like the men of Jabesh, where we're, we're just looking for salvation anywhere, anywhere, from anyone that can give it to us. We're far too willing to yield to the patterns of this world. 
but it is because of God's love for his people, because he has placed his name upon his people, and he has covenanted to be our God, his holy anger is aroused, and that is why Jesus Christ came. That is, that is the reason why he came to save his people. And even in his earthly ministry, we see that holy anger worked out in response to sin and wickedness. He was angry at the hardness of heart of the people and uh, the, the, the corruption of teaching by the Pharisees. He was angry enough to be brought to tears when his beloved friend Lazarus died. He was graphically aroused to rage in the temple when he made a whip and he cast out the money changers and their animals out of the temple and he purified it. But beloved, know this, the cross of Jesus Christ was the perfect example of God's anger on display. His Jesus bearing the, the beaten, bloodied, bruised, body, bearing the weight of our sins and God's wrath being poured out in judgment upon him. Beloved, our salvation is because of God's anger and wrath against sin worked out in the context of love through the body of Jesus Christ. But beloved, the Spirit also works through Jesus to assemble us in him, in his kingdom, behind this king. But Jesus didn't cut up oxen and send them throughout the land. It was his own body that was beaten and bruised and torn asunder and nailed publicly as a billboard in the, brightly shining in the midst of the dark world to say, this is what is due for your sin. This is the wrath that is held upon you, beloved. Fall in behind me. Should you not fall in behind this king, such shall be done for you. It's a, it's a rallying cry behind our king that we too will be torn asunder for all eternity by the wrath of God if we do not hide ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ, and bow the knee to him. Beloved, have you done that? Have you bowed the knee to Christ as your king? And, and notice that there was a dread of the people that came from the Spirit. Have you felt that dread? That dread of your own sin, the condemnation that you deserve because of your separation, your rebellion, your disregard for the Almighty God. Beloved, feel that dread and draw near to Christ. He was sent by God's great love to save you so that his sacrifice would be for you so that you would not have to endure that. But thirdly, we're called, we're assembled for a purpose. Have you forgotten that? For us who have been saved by the power of Jesus Christ and assembled to him, we were called to him for a purpose. The people of Israel were called to Bezek. They were mustered there so that they would go to deliver the people of Jabesh. 
to fight the Ammonites. And beloved, so you and I have been called to him to, for a purpose. Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own position, possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. What is that good work that we are called to? I would assert to you that it is to wage the good warfare that we have been called to. We have been called to wage war in Christ Jesus for the sake of the kingdom. Beloved, do you, do you see evangelism as warfare? Spiritual warfare to which each and every one of us, without exception, is called. Because that's exactly what it is. We are members of, this, of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ who are given a glorious message to speak into the, the darkness of this world and the kingdom of this darkness and to, to do what we can to proclaim this glorious message of Jesus Christ. Jesus, our God does not call us to ask people to put their faith in Christ. This is a command that we are called to Declare, bow the knee to Christ, or perish. He doesn't uh, teach us that the gospel of Jesus Christ in Christianity is just one valid philosophy of many, and we put it before people and say, here, choose which one makes sense to you. He gives us a message and says, this is the way, the truth, and the life. Repent or perish. Beloved, this is holy war. The gospel is an offer of peace. It is a gracious covenant given by the Almighty God that says, hide yourself in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him or you will surely die. And that's the message that we've been given. Or do you, do, when you think of sanctification, we talk about sanctification, growth and grace. Uh, growing in Christ's likeness, do you, do you view that as, as warfare? Because it really is, beloved. Even when we are, come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to grow in him. And the, the old man still resides in us, this, this, this body of sin, and we are called to wage war, to put it to death. That's warfare language, beloved. Paul said, let sin not reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Listen to that. It's a fight. It's a question of kingship and authority to which we are called. Beloved brothers and sisters, are you fighting this fight? Are you fighting the fight of sin within your own heart to put to death that sin which wages war against your own soul? Are you waging war by sharing this gospel of grace with confidence and boldness, knowing that you have been saved by this very gospel? Beloved, how can we do this? It is only by the Spirit of God working within us. But praise God, we've been given his Spirit. But we are also called to ask for the Spirit. Are you asking for the Spirit of God, or are you remaining indifferent to these things? Are you remaining inactive, idle, rather than... Harnessing, receiving the power of God to work within you. 
Jesus said, you know, you who are evil, you, you, you know how to give good gifts to your children. He said, how much more will your heavenly father give you the spirit to those who ask? Are you asking for the spirit? The spirit of God, the spirit of power and love and self-control to work within you to bring this to bear. And this is a, this is a battle that every believer, without exception, this isn't for ordained clergy, ordained elders or deacons, or even leaders of the church. This is for every one of us. Every person was called to assemble and fight. But it's also important for us to understand the mode of attack, beloved, and especially this aspect of holy anger, this aspect of anger. We could say that evangelism is part of God working out his his holy anger in and through us. The work of sanctification is him working out this holy anger within us as he's conforming us to the image of his son. He's releasing us from the things that lead to death. But we have to be very clear that there is a distinction between holy anger and unholy or sinful anger or the anger of God and the anger of man. And we are called to one and we are told to forsake the other. Paul told the Ephesian church, he said, be angry and do not sin. But James said, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. How do we distinguish between the two? The anger of God, which is holy, is controlled. It's not out of control. It is concerned in God's holiness. It is opposed to that which God hates. We're taught that. Psalmist said, do I not hate those who hate you? Do I not hate those who harm? We're called to hate evil, hate wickedness, whether it's the wickedness that we see in the world or the wickedness that we see in our own hearts. We're called to learn to hate it. But the wickedness of, or the, the, the anger of man is uncontrolled. Many of us here, if not all of us here, are angry people. We know the lack of control we have over the anger in our hearts and the anger in our mouths and the anger that we live out. That's ungodly, sinful anger. Anger which is for our own purposes, that is concerned about ourselves rather than others. The anger of God is gentle and builds up and seeks to save. The anger of man tears down and destroys and seeks only ourselves. The the anger of God seeks God's vindication, the vindication of Christ and the salvation of his people, whereas the anger of man only seeks to satisfy ourselves. We must learn godly anger, holy anger, and we must learn to rid ourselves of Man's anger. Beloved, do you know that if you have a indifferent or idle attitude towards the wickedness that is in the world, if it, if it does not arouse a holy anger within you, that, that you have an anger problem. That is, that is sin. We, we need to conform our view of what is important to what God declares. And if, you don't, if you've taken an indifferent attitude to the sin that is in within your, your own heart or you've just allowed it quarter within your heart, um, you're in sin. And you need to wage war against that sin. You need to allow the Spirit to 
Renew your thinking that you might put it to death. We also need to learn how to exercise this anger rightly. We need to understand that um, holy anger must be exercised in a manner that is governed by God's word just as much as the things that we must be angry about. And God gives us particular weapons to wage this war. We need to remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is so easy to be affected by the people or the, the, the human institutions and say that our battle is against that. And God's word says, no, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. And so we must wage spiritual warfare with spiritual weapons that are provided by our God. And what are those weapons? We have to look again to our King, Jesus Christ, and see what were the weapons that he, weighed, he wielded as he waged this war. And first and foremost is his word, the very word of God. The, the, the preaching of the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the primary weapon. It is the sword of the Spirit for waging war. But also he came with a very different way of showing anger than what we typically do. He came loving his enemies. He came patience and gentleness. We're called to patiently endure evil, to correct our opponents with gentleness, with kindness, pour heaping coals upon their heads. We're to pray for them, pray for those who persecute them. Really what we're doing is we're living out that holy anger that our God did. Paul speaks about the kindness and the severity of God. There is a true severity of the gospel. That if we do not repent in Jesus Christ, we will surely perish. But there's a kindness as well. He patiently endured our evil. And that's, that's what we have to remember, beloved, is that how did Jesus Christ win you over? Was it with sarcasm? Was it with hatred? Was it with ridicule? Was it with verbal violence? Was it with physical violence? No, he won you over with his love and showing you the beauty and the majesty of his son, Jesus Christ, the one who came and lived and gave himself for you despite the fact that you didn't deserve one bit of it. The one who sacrificed himself to purify you for himself because he loved you, not because there was anything in you that was lovable. Beloved, that's the, that's the way that we wage warfare. That's the way that God would have us exercise this holy anger with mercy and gentleness and love. And if you are waging warfare with the weapons of this world, such as sarcasm and hatred and the like, your king calls you to lay those weapons down. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, the, the Apostle Paul says that the weapons that, we, wo the, that we, wa uh, we wield are not of the flesh, but they have divine power of tearing down, of demolishing strongholds. But we look at that, we say, well, it's my job to demolish the strongholds, and I will use any means necessary, but that's not what it says. He says that the weapons that we have been given by our God, they have the divine power 
that the Holy Spirit works through the weapons that he has given to us. Grace, mercy, compassion, love, patience, the very word of God. Those are the weapons that we must wield. Weapons that our Savior Jesus Christ wielded. Because that's what he demonstrated. He came and he came to deal with the anger of our God. And yet a bruised reed he wouldn't break. And a smoldering wick he didn't snuff out. He was gentle and lowly. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was spit, he turned his cheek. And he entrusted himself to him who judged justly even as he gave himself for us. But know this, beloved. Not only uh, salvation is of the Lord, and our Lord will achieve salvation. He will achieve victory over his enemies. His, his anger will be fully dealt with, and he will be vindicated. We ask the question, how can this man save us? He will be vindicated. He was vindicated uh, by the Spirit when he was raised from the dead. He's vindicated in us when we put our faith in Christ and we say, this is my King, and he will be vindicated when he comes again. But today, beloved, he says, there's not a man that will be put to death. For the Lord has worked salvation. But there is a day coming. There is a day coming when that will be more bitter than death, when he will bring justice on earth, when every sin will be dealt with. His wrath will be quickly kindled, and so we must kiss the sun. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But beloved, we need not fear that day because he has given us his spirit. He has extended his perfect love to us, and he came to endure that wrath for us. So by the spirit of God, beloved, be subdued by your king. By the Spirit of God, call out to him, not to the powers of this world for salvation. By the Spirit of God, receive him as Savior. By the, by the Spirit of God, follow him as king. Bow the knee in worship and fall in behind him. And by the Spirit of God who is among us, beloved, serve him with zeal and joy and with all of your might as he works his glorious purposes in and through us. The glory is his name and for the vindication of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us uh, even when we were unlovely. We thank you that you've saved us even when we didn't call for you. We thank you that you work in us even though we have no power. We thank you that you remind us of your great might even when we are idle and indifferent. Oh, Lord, please work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that we might glorify you and enjoy you and that you might be magnified and enjoyed throughout this entire world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.